Welcome to the Speaking of Music podcast. I'm Jake Manzi. We've got a great episode for you today. Our guest today is Frank Padalaro. Frank is a songwriter, a producer, an engineer, and is the driving force behind the band King Radio. King Radio in 2004 put out a record called Are You the Sick Passenger, which is one of my favorite albums of all time, which you'll hear me gushing to Frank about in the intro. And yeah, I was very excited to have Frank on to pick his brain about the making of a record that I love so much, I've listened to so many times, and just to hear everything that led up to the creation of this album and everything that happened after. I had a lot of questions for Frank, and we had a great, great conversation. It was a lot of fun. I encourage anyone who hasn't heard this music to stream it or find a way to listen to it because it is a beautiful album. It's essentially chamber pop, Beach Boys style, hi-fi music that was recorded in a living room in Hadley, Massachusetts, which you'll hear all about. It's quite a production feat. Frank, at one point, I think he does in the interview, call it his masterpiece. And I agree with that. I think it certainly is a masterpiece. And it's such an ambitious album that was made under less than optimal circumstances, as you'll hear, with essentially no budget. And it sounds like it was made in a big studio for a million dollars. And I don't think in the year 2004 there were many records that came out sounding like this that were made this way under the circumstances. So I really think it's a great accomplishment and a beautiful album to listen to. Before we get to my conversation with Frank, just a brief message here to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Raspberries Records. Raspberries Records located in Ludlow, Massachusetts at 207 Windsor Street. It's a real fine record store where you can, um, you know, get your records, get your tapes, get your stereo equipment, whatever you may need to have a rockin' setup. They've got it over at Raspberries Records. This episode is also brought to you by Gigantic. Gigantic is a craft cocktail bar located in East Hampton, Massachusetts. They are purveyors of fine craft cocktails. They got fresh juices, fresh syrups. Everything is delicious and made in-house there. Gigantic is located at 78 Cottage Street in East Hampton, Mass. So go check out Gigantic. Also, for anyone in the Los Angeles area, I'll be playing a show on January 30th at Hotel Cafe with my friend Kimaya Diggs opening the show. And I'm very excited to play my first show in Los Angeles where I'll be living for a couple months this winter. So that's January 30th at Hotel Cafe in Los Angeles. Tickets can be purchased at my website, www.jakemanzi.com shows. Also, if you find the show valuable, you can support it at our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash speakingofmusic. You can become a subscriber to the show there for a few bucks a month, and you'll get bonus material, bonus content, and anything that comes through there just makes the show a more viable endeavor, which is a good thing. So thank you for your consideration. All right, here is my conversation with Frank Padalaro. So 
I think um, closer to the mic, the better. But I can, you know, we can raise. No, I that like that rich, sonorous. Yes, yes. Yeah. Is that uh, right? Yeah, that seems that seems good. Hey, hey. Yeah, cool. But uh, welcome. Thanks for yeah, thanks for sure. coming over and and uh, chatting with me here. First of all, I want to talk to you about your record that came out in 2004. It's called Are You the Sick Passenger? And I want to talk about everything leading up to that, everything after that. But it's a record that I love. It's one of my favorite all-time records. And uh, yeah, we can maybe start from your starting point. You know, where did you grow up? I grew up in the eastern part of the state, uh, in North Andover, yep. in Andover, Massachusetts. It's a, you know... You know, it was kind of a rocky um, upbringing. I had a lot of time alone. I sang a lot, like choir, opera, um, stuff like that. Um, around about high school, there was kind of a decision point where I had to decide if I was going to go to um, conservatory yeah. to be a singer. And uh, I chose a more academic route. <clears throat> but I really, you know, I liked music. Um, a music academic route? No, or, just an okay. academic, yes. academic okay, gotcha. route. Yep. Uh, yep. I yep. ended up going to like this, a fancy prep, really competitive prep school. Yep. Um, and yeah, I think my dad, basically, he looked at me and, it, you know, you can tell sometimes when people are honest. And he said, uh, you know, if you want to be a musician and a singer, I support that. But you're not going to sing like with the Met. He's like, nobody gets to sing with the Met. You're going to teach singing lessons you're gonna work in several different church choirs like for pay to help fill out their sound you're gonna you know um you might be a music teacher uh and he sort of described the life i think that was um that you wanted right that's what <laughs> no he described a life i definitely yeah, okay. didn't yeah, want yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh but also i could just hear the truth in it you know like i i knew that he wasn't just trying to discourage <laughs> Yeah, he was he was being pretty realistic, and he's like, if that's what you want to do, if you want to struggle, you know, giving singing lessons and stuff, and and that's gonna be what you end up doing. And so I realized I didn't really want to do that. And I think in the suburbs of Boston, there wasn't really much in the way of um, any kind of culture or anything where I grew up. I mean, people hung out. He might play in music like in your band room or whatever, but it was mostly about um, you know, cover bands and, um, that would, that's what, like I was taught to play music by my uncle who lived with us. He was a, a drug dealer <laughs> that lived in my basement and he, um, taught me to play guitar, had a ton of records, but you know, it seemed like the maximum would be to play at a large venue in Haverhill playing covers yep. to people. That was like what the thing was. So I think when I came out to college at UMass and I stayed for a semester, um, <clears throat> I left to become a luthier, so I started fixing guitars, and I working with a guy named William Cumpiano in Hadley. So I kind of dropped out of school and just started doing that, and through that I met people at Downtown Sounds, and eventually I opened a shop there, and that's how I was kind of introduced to people. I had a metal band with Jim Weeks from Downtown Sounds. I sang lead, you know, kind of in a gravelly kind of voice, and... uh through that, I ended up playing the local venues, meeting people in bands that later came to be in King Radio. So I played in a band called Miss Reed with Ray Needs, who was a big Behemoth fan, my metal band. And uh, 
Yeah, so just kind of stumbled my way into the music scene. Now, all that would have been somewhere between around 1990 and 1993. So you were, yeah, getting exposed to a music world that wasn't uh, singing in the church and, uh, you know, kind of things your your dad probably didn't know existed, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly world. things that my dad didn't know existed yeah. and then things that my uncle didn't realize existed either. Like yeah. there's the whole indie rock, burgeoning indie rock scene and... This idea of like all these cool bands played at the Bay State in Northampton every night. And I started yeah. going probably around 1993, 1994, early 94. I started going pretty much every night. There was music seven nights a week there. And I started going and checking out bands. And and uh, my metal band was kind of crumbling. And I kind of thought like, oh, I'd like to, I don't really like metal. I, I came into it just because it was the first band I was ever yeah. in. And uh, so I kind of figured I'll try to make an original band. So me and my wife who played drums, Michelle Aguilar, and Jim Smola, bass player from Hadley, um, just started practicing in his dad's dentist office uh, around the end of 93 and writing my first original songs, which were kind of cowpunk, silly. We were uh, um, the first version of, that's King Radio, really. Um, and because that lineup would stay together all the way through the first King Radio record. So I just felt kind of, I don't know, what we were doing, we were writing silly songs. Uh, it was kind of funny. I would describe it as sort of a, like a wimpy suburban Mojo Nixon. That's uh, yeah, that's my favorite genre. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So when you're writing those first songs, what, or even you know, going back to your uncle's record collection and things like that, what was the kind of music that was grabbing you? As a kid, I mean, you say you know, it doesn't seem like it was metal necessarily, and definitely in the uh, maybe it was. I don't, yeah, I'm not no, sure. I mean, yeah. I think uh, what was weird, I think a little interesting is that I was a introverted kid. I was um, smart, but I grew up in a pretty messed up uh, environment. Uh, and so um, as a, I just didn't have a lot of friends. Yeah. And so I think one, th- one of the things that was interesting is I didn't really understand there was a difference in music. I think it wasn't until I was like much later, like in high school or something, that I understood that there were genres. So my dad really liked Simon and Garfunkel and folk music, if he liked popular music at all. Yeah. Um, otherwise, he liked big band and, and classical. But uh, I mean, I really liked those Simon and Garfunkel records that he had, uh, and I love that. I think my mom had a boarder at her house that, that was living in a room, and he left his record collection when he skipped out on rent, and that had a Beatles record in it, so I would have been about nine and I got my first Beatles record, heard The Who, Roxy Music. That was all in his record collection. My uncle moved in around then. He really liked classic rock. So um, everything from, you know, from whatever, Edgar Winter, Uriah Heep, all the big classic rock bands besides. I'm just sort of citing the more extraneous stuff. And uh, I was listening to, like, I think I went to a camp and somebody gave me the jam. And... Um, I really didn't hear a difference or think that there was a difference between that's entertainment by the jam and like Simon and Garfunkel. Um, it was just know, music. Parsley. Yeah. I, yeah, it's just yeah. music. And I, I didn't really, until people maybe started making me fun of, fun of it for me a little bit Yeah. in junior high, I didn't really realize, yeah, that the Kinks Destroyer was any different from Parsley anything Sage else. Rosemary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sure your mom was psyched about that deal of uh, getting the records and not, not getting she the records. She was not psyched. <laughs> not psyched about that at all. Um, I, yeah, I remember uh, you you talking about um, uh, Being Green, that song Being Green, and, and that kind of struck me as sort of like um, music that I identify almost King Radio kind of becoming. Yeah, and that's uh, it's written by Joe Raposo, right? Joe Raposo, yeah, yeah and, and he wrote... So my dad had a... He, my dad had a record, like probably around the same time, in, in the seventies by Sinatra. It was his big comeback record um, called "Old Blue Eyes Is Back," and I listened to that record a lot. Again, not thinking it was cool or uncool, just didn't really realize anything. But there's some beautiful songs on there. Um, notably, there used to be a ballpark right here, and that really was appealing to me. And it wasn't until decades later that I found out that was Joe Raposo too. So that's sort of like <clears throat> erudite pop. Um, I listened to a lot of AM radio when I was a kid. So all that, like Glenn, Glenn Campbell tracks and um, filter into that and Burt Bacharach. And then um, all the music from Sesame Street was hugely imprinted on my head. So all those Raposo songs um, that are just masterful pop songs, really. I mean, like if they'd been sung by Dionne Warwick and the lyrics had been like, Everybody Sleeps, that's a beautiful song. Being Green is crushing. That's yeah, a great song. It's yep. crushing. Yep. Um, so, so you start playing in bands around Northampton and, uh, yeah. so we're at the base yeah. day, we're, we're playing every night. We're like the, the open mic, uh, electric open mic host for a couple of months. You know, uh, I was doing bookkeeping for Mal Thursday's chunk records and that got me some probably shows that we'd didn't deserve to have. I mean, we were pretty ramshackle. Those are fun shows when you're, <laughs> <laughs> when you're like, yeah, yeah, this is great. I shouldn't really be here and uh, I'll take it. <laughs> but yeah, like, so I think in 94, we opened for Angry Johnny and that was like a, the first time we really played our original songs and they were goofy. We had songs like Michael K will do anything for a, a miss. Sorry, Michael Kane will do anything for a buck and a song about a snapping turtle. And I mean, it's just like really silly stuff. Uh, um, a song about, um, people who had various walks of life and they also solved crimes that was heavily influenced by the TV writer, Stephen Jake and Al. So they kind of like, we, we yes. were trying to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, what happened was I joined the Scuds in, in October of 96. Um, That's the Scud, Scud Mountain Boys. Yeah. Right? So Steve D um, left the band on bass and I was friends with all those guys and we had opened for them and a lot and we just hung out together, Joe and I and, Tom Shea and and they and were having some success, kind of right. Yeah, so when, I mean, when I joined them, we just I just went on the road with them. That was me joining the band. Was they had dates coming up and they needed to play. Yeah. So suddenly we're on tour with John Doe from X and playing larger venues, and I got this idea that um, I should do a rec records of music that might be good, <laughs> like not just for fun, but for something good. And so I made. Two records uh, starting around um, 97, probably the middle of 1997. I had some pop songs I'd written for the band Miss Reed. Also, other pop songs I didn't really feel like King Radio could play well enough. Yeah. And then I had King Radio, which was a little more um, garage alt country at that yeah. point. And I made those two records simultaneously at Slaughterhouse. So they have a lot of crossover from members. So we were recording all the basics and everything, but I always intended an EP of like kind of my best songs, which would be how I got signed. And then a full length of my band songs with um, with King Radio, because 
I wanted, you know, is that was a band I had with my wife, and I felt like I just wanted that going. band to keep going. Yeah, but I definitely thought of those are the worst songs. It just weirdly, um, Angry Johnny was on tour. My friend Ray was playing our a cassette of that album, and uh, the the their label guy happened to be there, and he called me up and then signed us so he put out oh, the, the king, king radio, radio record is that the mr k is mr dead? k is dead. Okay. Go home yep. it's pretty like it's a it's kind of flies around between power pop our alt country and yeah as best as we could play with a drummer that only playing a couple of years and and so the ep that you made did that ever come out yeah the ep ended up coming out many years later on uh, a power pop label called not lame oh um so that's called the mission orange ep but they were recorded at exactly the same time, even though the Mission Orange EP probably came out um, while we were recording Sick Passenger. Yeah. And so was that under your name, the Mission Orange? Uh, we just, I just called it Mission uh, King. I called it King Radio, the Mission Orange EP. Okay. But the original intention was for them to be different. Yeah. And by then, I'd already like printed like hundreds of CDs that I'd been sending places, whatever. So right. I had a big spindle of Mr. K is Dead before we ever got a deal and I had a big spindle of mission orange and that's what I was sending out trying to get deals. Yeah. I just printed a spindle and then I would put them in like, you know, regular CD sleeves and mail them out. And, uh, was, yeah. So was that an exciting time? I mean, um, it sounds like it was, but just in the music business, it seems like there were, yeah, those possibilities, like literally mailing out records. That was, that was a good way to, you know, get something to happen. Right. It was, maybe not, maybe but not. there are lots of, there are lots of good bands mm-hmm. and there are bands from Northampton that had record deals. And, you know, the, I think the cool thing about Mal Thursday and his chunk records in Northampton at the time is you get, you really got an, uh, an unreasonable um, confidence that you could be successful in the music industry. Like yeah. it was a strange time. Like everybody, I had said once in a blog, like when, when he left town as troubled as he was, um, I think a, a bunch of people just woke up and were like, oh, I'm a barista. I, I'm not a... <laughs> I thought I was going to, you know, he was be a giving musician. everybody hope. Yeah. yeah. So who yeah. who was he exactly? Mal Thursday, yeah. and he yeah. owned a label called Chunk Records, okay. and they put out a lot of those um, '90s records, including the first Scud Mountain Boys yeah. um, single, which got them signed to Sub Pop. Um, yeah, lots of good bands from Northampton. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to ask about is the so Mr. K is dead is directly before Are You the Sick Passenger? No, right? No, is there a record in between? Oh or yeah, there is. Yeah, so okay. there, there's Mr. K is dead. We probably f- started recording for real in like July of 1997. Okay, and then we wrapped it. But like I I mentioned, I none of these records I've ever actually put out myself. So. Mr. K is dead. I printed a spindle of CDs, sent them around. We sold them or gave them away at shows, really. And the whole idea was I would give them away at Scud Mountain Boys shows. So probably in 97, I was still playing with the Scuds. I was giving away those CDs on the road to anybody I thought that was- after the show. Yeah, yeah. 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 Anybody I talked to that gave me something from their band, I'd be like, here's something from my (laughs) band. Right. Um, Because I thought that, well, I want really myself to be successful, especially after you played those shows with- and you saw what it was like to be on the road with a real booking agent and a label. And um, boy, I would I would have liked that. Yeah. Now, we weren't as good. <laughs> so there was that. But in my head, we were. Yeah. Um, by the time Tar Hut Records put that record out in 1998, we were already, like, we'd been playing shows abroad, like, outside of Northampton and traveling. And then we started touring even before the record came out for Tar Heart Records, that first record. So we'd already written a song. And so the first two records are basically a band 
playing in a room, arranging songs, playing shows, adding a new song every show, yeah. arranging it on the fly, new things happen in the show, it improves, and then eventually you record it. So <clears throat> by the time that record came out in 98, we were already really gearing up to record a new record, which I was calling Curse of the Bambino, that we probably finished around 2000. Okay. Um, and then that record is, you know, it's a full length. It's much better than the first record. Yep. It's much more power pop. Straight ahead, we kind of lost the country stuff. Yeah. There's nothing like going and playing a show in Nashville, like at, you know, Robert's Western Wear or whatever, and and being like <laughs> with real country bands and being like, oh, Jesus, yeah, it's not this us. is embarrassing. Yeah. I'm playing my lame little yeah. country licks and just yeah. feeling like, you know, I'm way out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm way out on a limb. It's like that Fred Armisen uh, Northampton <laughs> skit, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Blue Jean Boys, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I was like way out. We were way out on a limb playing music. You know, <laughs> it was like comical. So as soon as we started touring, a lot of those songs, the the, the more um, country songs, kind of fed, went away, and we settled into kind of a power pop kind of thing. Yeah. Um, we'd also since Mission Orange, we've been exper- experimenting with. Um, strings so i think we're like the first northampton band that really used real strings and it was a heavy influence the fact that just that we could do it on joe pernice's um first record yeah where he had strings composed and arranged for so we made that mission orange ep and he was he was like wow i didn't think you could have a real string section so you, there were there was a full string section on mission orange just a, a chamber pop yeah arrangement yep. it's just one guy played it all but right it, um I think Dave Trenholm, who's in our band, is incredible. And yeah, he, he is. Um, I just knew he could do it. And so he just sat down and wrote strings for a couple songs um, without the track. So it was pretty early, like before composition materials. He just got a piece of paper. He had the arrangement in his head, and he just wrote it out. Um, and, uh, yeah, so by the time we got to that Curse of the Bambino record, that record ended up having symphony on it. So wow. um, David rec- had tracked uh, all over and all. All in all, it was like 24 pieces recorded over multiple sessions. Um, so multi-tracked, usually in groups of five. And it had oboe and bassoon and all, all the winds you could think of and the full string section and um, horns. And so we did a nine-minute kind of epic symphony song called um, 1974. And we also did the first version of Caveat Emptor was on that record oh, okay. um, with a... Dave composed octet. So um, we were, by then the strings were better. They sounded better. They were less rickety. And uh, again, we finished that record and it was in the can and it just floated around. Nobody ever put it out. It was originally going to be for that label, but they went under. Um, but by then we, I'd already had the idea for what I wanted Sick Passenger to be. Yeah. And nobody ever put out Bambino. So it just stays like you know, I give it to people who want it. It's a uh, really yeah. good record. I would love to. I, I haven't <laughs> heard that one. I haven't heard that one. Um, well, it seems like things are getting more ambitious, if nothing else, and more realized in a way of kind of where all your talents between Dave and you Ken Murray. and Ken Murray, you guys are kind of bringing out things in each other. It sounds like on that record, which sort of leads into... The Sick Passenger. Yeah, you you and I were talking about um, Gordon Lightfoot. Yeah. And how, if you look at his doc, how hard he worked. And how, and sometimes, in, especially like in indie 
pop in Northampton between 1990 and 2005 or whatever. Yeah. That was not real cool. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't a cool look to want to be successful. You know. Yeah. Um, and I think that's early. That sort of middle King Radio through Sick Passenger is marked by like an audacity. Like we're gonna do. We're just going to try to do something more than everybody else. And I, and I think in my head was like, I don't know, the songs are good or bad, but we're going to do more. Um, it also coincides. So we made that um, Bambino record with Jim Weeks. All that string production, everything was right out of, you know, Dave and my suggestions to Dave for lead lines or what we wanted to do. Yeah. And then um, as we as I was finishing or working on that, a guy named Peter Baldwin, who's from Greenfield, Massachusetts, um, I'd heard his Hercules recording. So in 97, he made a Christmas EP that is crazy cool. Um, and then I love that. In 97, he was making a record called In the Alleyway, and I heard rough mixes for it. And it was really, the arrangements were really right out of that back rack thing. And I thought, I want this guy to show me how to do this. And then we had just a tumultuous, um, we're friends, we're still friends, but we had a tumultuous <laughs> relationship. He had he had been in Greenfield, he'd gone off to go to college, but I knew a lot of mutual friends from Greenfield bands. So there was a band called Falafel Boy and Meister Fricht and all these, North, uh, all these Greenfield people I still know, Rob Keller, Rob Cook, who later played in King Radio, um, all were high school friends of Peter's. Okay. So I brought him over my house. I played him The Curse of the Bambino. I said I want to do something more like Hercules. And he came up with a series of crazier and crazier demands on me to do that. Well, yeah, he definitely seems like a, uh, this to me, uh, as somebody who doesn't know the ins and outs quite yet, yeah, he's like this mythic figure. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, and you're telling me, yeah, he was giving you demands. Like, uh, I don't know what was going on, but I'm I'm psyched to to hear. But I, yeah, that Hercules in the alleyway record is incredible. Oh, it's amazing. And um, it was mixed by Jay Maskus. Uh, apparently, yeah. it kind of was, sort of. No. <laughs> I would say so. The thing about the the that record, and I don't want to get into Peter's history because yeah. I honestly, when I give you dates and stuff here. I'm going to be way off. Like I, it all sort of blurs into yeah. one thing and it all feels like it was five days ago, but yet I can't remember. Any of it. <laughs> so, um, that in the alleyway was fully formed before and, and mixed before I ever heard from Jay Maskus. So I think, um, the way Peter recorded that he had a, he had a SM 57 and they just basically recorded one instrument at a time, him and the guy, Ben, that was in the band Hercules with him. Um, they wrote all the songs, and they were doing the stuff that I wanted to do with strings and everything, but it was a more like erudite orchestral pop sound and less of like a power pop thing than yeah. I was doing. A lot of space in the records, but it was super lo-fi. So they had a four track, and they would they were doing like um, they basically would have a rough mix on track one and chat and do three tracks, and then they would dump all that to a rough to mix on another cassette. Oh. And so they ended up with like a, a bundle of cassettes with all the original tracks on them <clears throat> and then didn't understand while they were doing it that there's tape flutter and wow. So in the end, like nothing synced. 
So even though they had a mix, which could be a guide to sync up the tracks, yeah. it's not like syncing up digital tracks because of the, the tape speed wow and flutter. The tracks and the different mixes that they were tracking to were all subtly different. Right. Every time you press play, it's, it's Every, playing yeah, back a it's little bit that, different. It, um, or more importantly, like when they put the master mix over to the new cassette, there was a subtle time difference between the two machines yeah. so that when they were tracking later, it was either a little slower or a little longer. And it also wavered throughout the song. So it wasn't even stable over the length of it. So Mark Miller, I think was the first guy to take a whack at pulling all those tracks together and then trying to time edit all of them so that they fit together with Peter in the room. So I think the first mixes I heard didn't have Jay involved at all. Okay. And then later the mixes happened at Jay's studio with Mark and Jay. Yeah. And but I don't know how much time Jay put into it as much as he was a na- his name on yeah. it. I really don't know how much, but um yeah, that that's this as much as I know of Peter Baldwin's uh hero origin story and, and the <laughs> album in the alleyway. Um as we were working on Sick Passenger, he was he went back to the studio to re-record the vocals. And he did that in my studio. Record? Yes, yeah. for for that. Yeah. So the first version, it was sung by a kind of a lounge singer guy named Glenn Styler. Okay. And then they decided they didn't like that, and they got the singer from the band Fan Modine, or the guy called Fan Modine sometimes, um, uh, and Gordon. And they had him come and record. So while we were tracking Sick Passenger at my... Um, house in Hadley, King Radio Band House in Hadley, he was also retracking the vocals for that. Yeah. And several of the demands for King Radio's recording overlapped with his needs for Hercules. In in what sense? So one of the demands was that we would give him studio space and time for this. I mean, it was our basement. Yeah, your basement, right? Yeah. But we, that, we this had, is brown bag recordings yeah. in Greenfield. We were one of the, or sometimes the people under the stairs. This was actually in Hadley. Um, okay. we, we finished in Greenfield. We started in Hadley because yeah. I moved. Uh, he, and, which means that record took a long time. It did say. years. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, Peter, <laughs> uh, Peter demanded studio time because I was one of the early adopters of digital recording on a computer. Um, and so I had an, a really early Motu setup, um, and a couple of IMAX, um, that I ran or ran with it. And then later, um, a Mac like G3. So I had, uh, I was a really early adopter. I had studio space and I had some good mics. So I I bought a couple of Neumanns early on oh. um, and horse traded for a bunch of other gear. So he he wanted to record there. And they were also making a new record, which ended up being called Ford Juniper. Okay. Which is just as beautiful. Yeah. Um, and they wanted to record that. So they were recording that. Um, they had instruments they wanted. That was another demand. So we needed to have some time-driven electric pianos. Instruments they wanted for your both record. Okay, yes, yeah. So he <clears throat> so was going to help you. Peter wasn't going to yeah. make my record unless I had a tone wheel Hammond. So I ended up finding an L one hundred three. And what is, what is that exactly? Like a That's Hammond a organ. Hammond or, okay, okay. Um, and the the ones that aren't like electric. They're electronic, but they're they're driven by these tone wheels that move. That's the beautiful sound of like a B three. Right. Um, okay. This a really organic sound comes from this kind of style of organ that's just this hulk of a gigantic weighty thing. They made a few smaller ones, the L organ that we got to satisfy Peter. Like I was broke. I was making like $8,000 a year. So this was not like I was trying to get things by hook or crook. He also wanted a, 
um, electric pianos that were time driven. So I found a like a Ray Charles era um, uh, electric piano, like one of the first ones. So an early whirly, even though he wanted the other kind. And I already from the earlier records, I'd I'd fallen in love with time pianos, and so I got a Rhodes. So I had a Rhodes around already. Um, I also had to repair. He had a Moog, so I had to find a way to either repair it. And then he had several um, musical instruments, including the bass that is really characteristic on on Sick Pastor. Yeah. That particular bass, um, a 1959 EB2 um, that I helped him uh, just tweak a little bit. And then a couple other guitars that I had to do serious work. EB2, what, what, uh, what it's like a that? It's Gibson. It's oh. like a 335 body. Okay, yeah. Um, yep. Shorter scale. Yeah. And the the part of what gives it that sound on the record of flat wound string is it kind of makes it go dunk, dunk, yeah, dunk. Yeah. yeah. And did you know he was a great bass player or? Well, I knew he played bass on the Hercules record. Yeah, and, and that, it, that it is cool. exceptionally cool. Yes, yeah. um, again, like the way things work through the recording session, when I he first unveiled his bass parts for Sick Passenger, they were crazy. So a whole bunch of things came out of the decision to make that record. Uh, there were other demands. He had to, um, basically had final say over everything. Um, and then we, as we negotiated, I developed, we developed veto power. So I could not do something. Um, you, you had veto power? I had yeah, veto okay. power. That's yeah. good. I could not do something, <laughs> but I couldn't say do something. Wow. Um, and then uh, I could, he wanted to play bass, which meant I had to fire our bass player. Um, Was that an easy... It was weird. Yeah. You yeah. know? Yeah, of course. So we were all living together. Yeah. And I, all I said to... Basically, the decision I made was to break up King Radio. I said, I'm going to break up the band as it currently exists, which means my wife, who played drums, is no longer playing drums. Because that was another thing. Peter didn't really want her drumming. He wanted to be able to either drum ourselves, find better drummers. And the Mission Our Orange drummer, Paul Pellis, played on some of that record. And my wife played on some of that record. And under Ken, too? Ken played a little drums. Yeah. And Peyton Pinkerton from... Storm King played drums on one song, and Peter played drums on one song. The uh, uh, other thing, so that I said I'm breaking up the band basically as a way to get out of firing people. Like right. I was like, I'm going to break up the band, I'm going to reform it with whatever Peter wants. I don't know what we're doing for bass, but you're not going to play on this record. It was, that's a weird conversation. Yeah, of course. Of but course. it was the only way to work with Peter. Um, well, it's I, good you had the conversation, too, you know, as opposed to... <laughs> we lived together, yeah, so it so would have been awkward. To. Yeah, of course, right, right. <laughs> uh, and then I think... Part of that, all that was an exercise in letting go. So I'd been extremely controlling through our first two records. Um, really heavily produced by me, even though the first record is produced by Tom Monahan, but it was heavily, I was heavily involved in it. Second record recorded partially by Jim Weeks, but recorded the other half by me and really entirely produced by me. Yeah. Um, and I kind of thought like, well... I've taken this like as far as I'm going to go, and I'm, I'm kind of interested in seeing what happens if I truly collaborate with somebody. Yeah. Peter's other thing was he wanted songwriting credit for every song, and I made weird decisions like, I don't know. It doesn't. I guess I don't care. Yeah. So, so <laughs> like he ended nothing's up. ever going to happen with any of these songs anyway. And I would say like a good half of the songs are almost unrecognizable for my original demos. Really. But the other half, some of the songs are not changed at all right right and so yeah what was the songwriting process of that that record where was your head at kind so at, of at that point like we'd been playing like i mentioned we sort of play all along so we'd already kind of worked up five songs i think 
and even recorded a couple in my basement because now with this studio, I was getting better at that stuff. Yeah. Um, and so with, those are demos I gave to Peter. And I think he might have selected one or two songs that he liked from that. Um, and then I had other songs which were not band played, but were relatively realized, like demos that were sort of full length. And maybe two or three more came out of that. And then I played him Curse of the Bambino, which hadn't come out yet. And I said, this hasn't come out yet. So if any of these songs you want to redo, and he picked Caveat Tour, And then um, at that point, I was toast. And he still wanted like four or five more songs. So we, <clears throat> Ken and I got together and just started writing riffs, or I did some on my own. And, and some songs like were little pieces. Like I gave Peter maybe like a minute, which was like, here's a verse and chorus yeah. idea, maybe what the bridge would be like or something. Um, and that would be a song like uh, the la very last song we wrote. Basically, Ken just, I wrote the lyrics, but Ken had this idea and we just put it on the tape. That would have been Famous Umbrella. So that's the last song. Yeah. And I guess the first song would have been Cabot M Tour because it already existed fully before the record. Yeah. And uh, other stuff kind of came out in between. I think two of the best songs that we recorded were that we were recording didn't end up on the record. Really? Yeah. What, which which one? And this is again because of veto stuff. I wow. think I traded. There was a song called Bonnie Bell that'll be on our newest record. Yeah. Um, that he had some weird idea for half tempo and a crazy like wah wah part that was like wow 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 through the whole song, and it just was going really sideways and, and kind of grossing me out. And uh, but he wanted it on the record. And in exchange, I gave away, I said, okay, well, we have a song, it's mostly done in stereo, it's called. And I think it's one of our best songs, period. It certainly has the best wow. lyrics, it's beautiful, and it's, the string part's incredible. Um, and that ended up not on the record, even though I think it would have been the best song on the record. It, even as in his current mix, it wow. would have been the best song on the record. Yeah. But I, I was, he, he hated it, and so I was like, I'll take that off the record if we can take this other song off the record. And then I think we did the cover really just to have, I, I thought it was important to have 10 songs. Yeah. Well, there is there 10 or there's, there's more on. Well, um, there's, there's a couple covers. So there, there, covers. there's okay, a, right. there's one with, which is sort of half credit intermission, but it's, yeah. it's from a Woody Allen movie. Yeah. Um, just a bit of interstitial music yeah. um, from the Woody Allen movie bananas. Uh, when we toured, we called it bananas. And then there's the, um, the, Barbara Acklin song, Am I the Same Girl? Yeah. Sometimes called Soulful Strut. I'll tell you what, I love the uh, the sequencing of intermission into the song Sick Passenger, just a beautiful, you know, this dun, 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 into this very, um, you know, introspective uh, acoustic guitar string song. I think that's a beautiful sequencing there thanks uh the sequencing was all me i think when we finished the record peter said it's unsequenceable it should never come out as a record um the album and i was like i i went away for like i, I feel like a day and i came back and said well this is the sequence and he said oh well that's perfect oh. now interestingly not the final sequence of the record but okay um uh the sequence got changed around a little bit around by spirit house right okay yeah, um yeah so uh originally the yeah but I, I was thinking of the record, like you and I like records from the 70s. I was thinking about it like an LP. Like I, I imagine an A side and a B side. Yes. Intermission was sort of the break. It could go on either the end of the A or the beginning of the B. Right, right. Um, 
<clears throat> there's some uh, there's some typewriter on this record on, yeah. on track two, right? The Smith Corona. Yeah. Smith -Corona so I, I think the typewriter using the typewriter is Peter's idea. It was just around my house. Yeah. And uh, this represents a kind of an important moment where my first relationship with my wife Michelle was crumbling, and one of it was about money because neither of us made any, and so we fought about it a lot. And I think I had bought a pedal, and she just let me have it about buying a pedal. It was like $75. And yeah. how could you have done that when, you know, we don't know where rent's coming from. And then two weeks later, she bought this typewriter <laughs> um, that we, we also argued about extensively. And, uh, you know, it's just funny that that ended up on the record a lot, where several of the songs are about breaking up with her. So, yeah. Well, you know, it was a good investment, I guess. It's on the record, you know? Yeah. Sometimes you got to buy that typewriter. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, we manipulated the typewriter so that the bell would ring in a predictable way. Yeah. You could just hit a button and get a bell. How were you guys uh, working on this record? Was it like full days? I, I, I was wondering, too, like, what were you, what were you eating? You so know, what we, were you eating we uh, moved, while you were recording? We moved the... Um, so my house in Hadley, in the basement, a very dusky, probably black mold infested basement. We had a a live room set up, and um, but one of Peter's things was he didn't like the live room; it was too dead. So we moved everything out of our dining room at this house in Hadley. Like it was a band house; we all lived there. Yeah. Um, we moved everything out of the dining room and replaced it with a Hammond organ and uh, a a baby. Oh, I needed a piano, so I had got a baby grand piano. And uh, drum kit. So we did all those initial live ses session trackings for the most part in uh, for all the basics that weren't direct in that room. The, so the dining room, yeah. no sound reinforcement, completely unprotected to the outside. So if any car drove by, we, you know, we were right on River Road in Hadley. So any car dro drove by, you could hear it. Um, and uh, but we tracked there. We did full days. Um, so I wasn't paying Peter per, per day. He had I gave him a piece of the record, a piece of the songs, and a flat fee, as I remember, and then a bunch of like luthery work, fixing his keyboards and stuff, like I mentioned, and access to the studio. He also demanded that I feed him. Hmm. Um, and he's a vegan um, who's also gluten intolerant. Hmm. So there wasn't a lot he ate, right. but I made a lot of like sushi and stuff for him. Oh, I was pretty good. I yeah, am a pretty good, good cook. cook. So um, I cooked from there, uh, and that was that was our deal. So what we're yeah. eating? He was eating a lot of sushi and stuff. Yeah, just just, just curious, but it was yeah. in my house, you know. Right. So well, we weren't. Nice we, we definitely have, weren't ordering out. We didn't yeah, have any money. It's nice to be in a house to go take a break and eat some food, yeah. you know, set vibe wise for a recording session. Right? But like our dining room was open right to the living room. Yeah. So everything was kind of mixed up, including yeah. two band members who had been, um, who weren't part of the record for the most part living there. Yeah. So it was, you know, it's weird. I think everybody's way cooler than I would have been maybe under the With same that. circumstances. Yeah. Um, Peter was around a lot. He would come down even cause a few times I had to go on tours I was doing like roadie work for the Pernice brothers, oh. um, one tour with the Q, um, and some other stuff. So I would go away for periods of time, but Peter would still work in the house. Mm -hmm. Um, and we would do that tracking and, you know, I would do editing one night. He'd want me to edit some drums. Like I was a much better editor. So I would do that and he would do, um, maybe some tracking like his own drum part or his bass parts he did alone. Really? Um, and I came okay. back and heard them all. So, um, that's how we were working and it was every day. Um, but 
we're mixing and moving around, tracking, you know, Dave and different drummers and so forth. And then at some point, um, my marriage was untenable. All the band guys are like, we're out of the house. And so I moved to Greenfield and we finished the record there. That's where all the strings are recorded. And then probably the last track that we tracked um, was one of those um, TV theme songs Ken and I wrote, uh, which is uh, You Were the One. Oh, yeah. That so was a, you wrote that as a TV theme song? Kind Ken of? and I, we were writing originally some of the demos we gave to Peter were songs Ken and I had thought about writing TV themes for songs that didn't exist. So one was You Were the One, and the other was called Bonnie Bell, which didn't end up on the okay, record. Okay. Um, and around that time, you recorded an NRBQ cover song too, right? Didn't So that was like, that. this record was in the can for a long time. Okay. Not a long time, but yeah. always longer than whatever. And the really nice gentleman at Spirit House put it out. But by then, it, I'd already been sending it out to people like crazy for maybe a year um, before it even got to them and was that um where where was your head at with that were you like man i want this to come out uh, and you wanted it to come out sooner or were you like i'm gonna take a year and kind of try to shop it around and something i came that came to me much later was that i realized i was a dilettante like i thought i wanted to entertain people with my music but in the end i realized like i really cared what people thought about it but it was like a sickness. Like each one was like a sickness I had to get out of me. Each song or each record. record. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so uh, once they were done, I was not in any hurry to do anything with them. Like for me, I had already accomplished what yes, I wanted, yes. which was to hear it and to give it to my friends. And to realize whatever that was in your, yeah, that sound it, in your head. As close as you get to it, which you never can get to. Of course. Yeah. Um, so to get that out and then to get that to like different people, um, and maybe get a record deal for it. Um, especially as it was coming along, I realized it was like by, by far the best thing I could ever do. So the record has flaws, but, um, and it's weird to call your own record a masterpiece, but whatever the apex of my ability is, like whatever my masterpiece is, <laughs> that was it. That was the best I could do at the time by far. Yeah. I was very impressed with it. And I thought surely somebody would hear it and put it out. But I also wasn't prepared or I didn't, market myself or try to do that much. like i gave it to everybody I could but yeah. you know i did i know people that are much better at that like jose ayerbe from spouse that guy never stops trying to get his more stuff for his band and it just wasn't me and so i realize now like oh i'm much happier just working a real job and creating and then doing this yeah. stuff and not even caring what yeah. happens to it to whatever extent um and so then i was sort of in between those places and um well, I guess the, to shorten it, the the folks from Spirit House wanted to put it out. We came to an agreement on that. I said, you're doing this Q tribute. We'd love to be on it. I think if you're going to put out this record, it would be, with all the famous people that are in the Q tribute record, it would be crazy not to have a song for it. And he's like, yeah, but we need to master it like Wednesday, like in a week. Yeah. Or And uh, so I we picked a song. I got back to them really quickly and I said, if this song isn't available, we can record this song. I got all the sick passenger people together, except that Peter didn't want to do it. Um, was he not though, a fan or uh, not an He NRBQ just didn't care about or? the song. He, didn't, yeah. he, he, he was indifferent. Yeah. 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 I and mean, that was like marked our entire recording time together. I hardly cared sometimes about things he deeply cared about. He almost never cared about things that I really cared about. So um, it, was, it was always that kind of conflict. Yeah. We had no time to argue. 
also our live bass player at the time because we've been playing sick, sick passenger songs live by that point. I um, was like, oh, I don't know. I'll be there if I can. So basically Ken and I went into the studio, um, tracked the stuff. Paul, our drummer, um, came in and did some uh, percussion tracking. Um, and we had Dave write strings. And, and Dave, um, he was like, I, he basically had one day to do it. So I booked the strings for like a Tuesday and he started them on Monday for that song. The string arrangement of that song is just devastatingly gorgeous. It's beautiful, yeah. Um, I just remember we came into Downtown Sounds on uh, Monday morning, and it, like he maybe had Sunday or Saturday, Sunday, and he was like, I just couldn't get to it. I'm sorry. I'll apologize to the string players who are going to be there. Maybe it was even Tuesday morning. It's like, I'll apologize to the string players. I'll call them and apologize for booking the session and everything. And I said, you're not going to, no. Like, you're going to go in there, like, into the piano room. I was like, I went and got a sheet music. I was like, you're going to go in the piano room at Downtown Sounds, even though we were both on on the clock. I was like, I will answer the phones. You do not come out to put any stuff away. You don't help any customers. You sit there with this piece of paper until you come back with the strings for this session. And sure enough, by Tuesday, string, uh, string time, he had that. We mixed it. We had a gig that night in Northampton. Um, I gave the track to to Danny and Paul, and I think they listened to it on the way to the mastering session on Wednesday, and decided it would be on wow. the, the trivia. So we re, we got that thing done, really in in less than a week, and it was just basically for the most part it was me, Ken, and Dave. Yeah, it's a, a, definitely an amazing string arrangement on there, and it's not yeah, it's not on the original recording, right? On no. the original NRBQ recording. What was so uh, gratifying to me is that when they did that big anniversary show not too long after that at the Iron Horse, I'm sorry, at uh, the Calvin. They did two nights of the Calvin. Yeah. So that would have been, I don't remember what year that would have been. Yeah, something like that. that. Um, And then, of course, 2007, because the record came out in 2008. Um, So, or no, maybe 2004. I think 2004. That sounds right. Anyway, yeah. uh, they came uh, when they came. They did Dave's arrangement of the strings for oh, that. Oh wow! So they played yes, yes, yes with our string arrangement. That's of, so cool. And Dave and, conducting. And were you a big NRBQ fan? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So my my friend Ray, who I was in the band Miss Reed with, he kind of insisted on them. And I I will say other people have had this experience too. I was not an early fan. My first listening to them, I didn't get it. I didn't get what people liked. I think my first exposure was. The comp Peekaboo, okay, uh, that was yeah. put out by um, Rhino or yeah. Rounder around round about that time, and uh, I don't know. I just it seemed hokey to me, yeah. uh, to be honest. And it wasn't until I think I got Yankee Stadium after that, and I heard tracks like Yes, 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 um, uh, Green Lights. You know, yeah. I, I I was got it, and seeing them live was the other cementing thing. I think around the same time I saw them play live at Taste of Holyoke with the. Um, Towards the end of the big uh, big owl lineup, it's and a good time, good and time they were see them, it like they were that. stunning, uh, yeah. and that so then I finally got it too. I was like, oh, if you listen to their first two records, they sound great, and some of the later records sound cheesy, yeah. Um, and but the songs but are good. I'm exactly, a, yeah. it's it's just the era. It's yeah. like, you know, I, I was not impressed by by a song like Little Floater on the record, but I was right. really impressed when I heard it. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah I love Little Floater. Yeah. Oh, man. But the ch- keyboard sounds on the, on the it, actual yeah. track, they're <laughs> super <laughs> cheesy. cheesy. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, yeah, you got to get past the production a little bit. Yeah. And, yeah. 
uh, yeah, a love song to a car. What, yeah, a, it's what beautiful. a beautiful song. Yep. Um, one one thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of just contextually your record. It came out in two thousand four, right? It's yeah, past I think so. And yeah, the the making of that, just the time period there. It's first of all, it's a. It sounds like a record that would have been made like in the '60s, like Pet Sounds era, big studio, big budget. Whereas it was made in a living room in in a basement, and like that was kind of the boom of that home recording, like studios, maybe 2003, 2002, 2004, not funding record, like you know, and you were kind of had you were, you know, had your Max in digital recording. Uh, yeah, so we were right on the crux of that. And yeah. So I was one of the. I think I pretty early on I realized that the big thing is your signal path. So as digital recording skipped from 16-bit to 24-bit, um, and being able to do it at home in a way without a ton of expensive gear, um, if you just had a one-tube pre and one nice large diaphragm condenser mic, which had become cheaper. Neumann's cheapest mic, the TLM-103, probably came out right around that time. Um, so suddenly, you know, for you could sound like a much better studio really quickly. All my friends that put out CDs in the late 80s, a lot of those sound really lame. Um, recording, even at studios, you know, they weren't outfitted, like, and they didn't have the engineers that that would have been around before. So local CDs in my mind, still sound like local CDs. It's around the 90s that they start, that that starts to change. So by the time 97, 98, um, I was doing home recording and they were getting better ADATs, were getting the first 20-bit ADAT came out. Um, 99, Peter puts out that uh, Glenn Styler in the alleyway. Yeah. Um, which is only available on Bandcamp, as far as I as far as I could find. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we're, you know, he's he's recording with fifty sevens, so I have better mics than that. I have a nice tube mic pre, um, and if you're recording one instrument at a time, that has like a mul- multiplying effect. Yeah. So suddenly you don't need a, a million nice mics; you just need one if you're if you're overdubbing. And so I think that's that's really that change. Now that said. You know, some of the engineering on Sick Passenger is really problematic. The drums are terrible. Like, the engineering of the drums is ter- are terrible. And that was really a fight between Peter and I. Like, he had very odd ideas about what drums should sound like. And he was trying to get something, which I don't think we ever got to. And if I just tracked it, I, it would just sound much better. Yeah. Because I made records for people around the same time. Uh, Blue Oz by Tim Walsh. Um, and some other records where I re- engineered the drums, and they were considerably better. Really? Um, so... Uh, in the end, we really had to do a lot to fix them in mixing. We went to Mitch Easter, who's a pretty f- kind of famous guy in North Carolina, um, North Carolina yeah. and and mixed the record. Peter and I, we drove down there with our with my Mac. Was that um, a fun ride? <laughs> yes, yeah, weird as yeah. always. You know, we went down there and, and we um, slept on his sofa, and we got a rate. I think his um, mom was dying, and he said, "I can mix your record if it's okay if I leave at any time because she's really at at the end." and what he ended up doing was just working super fast. I think we'd booked eight days, which I could n- no way afford that would have cost us like $7,000. Wow. And he mixed it in four. But one of the things he did was he tracked like the snare back out through a speaker on top of a nice snare and like re the snare 
Oh. Um, oh. That was like one thing that he did. Wow. And he did several things like that, which were kind of life-saving attempts to make the drums sound normal. Yeah. And was the, um, was the mixing process something that you enjoyed or, or is it, uh, yeah, uh, is it, yeah. I'm, the guy was incredible. Yeah. He's incredible. He worked long days. I've never been in a studio with somebody that was willing to do so much. But this sort of ties into what you said a second ago, because he said, um, he was like, you you know, when he, the first, he, we were mixing, we took all the stuff off the computer and we put it on, um, on a multi-track tape. Yeah. So we had 24 track, like two inch tape that all the, all the record came off the computer and onto this two inch tape, which definitely gives it a sound that's more like tape. Um, and he was mixing from there we were listening to the tracks as we were putting them on there. So, the, and they came in, in sort of the groups of the, the number of tracks we had. Um, so we're spinning the tracks off in there and he's hearing it as it comes down. He's like, he seemed really shocked that we had made the record in a house. And that's when I knew like, Oh, well, if we're impressing this guy and he's no stake in it really, like we're, he's not going to gas he, you up for no reason. And, he, right? and he's got like, you know, we're paying the bare minimum. Yeah. So it's not like he's going to somehow drag more money out of us. Yeah. Like, you know, he, any one look at us, you could tell like there's nothing else in this well. <laughs> yeah. So there's nothing reason for him to say it, but he became heavily invested within the first few songs and was also a little bittersweet because he, the vibe I got was that he was a little bummed out that you can make a record this good, like on a shoestring in your basement. He was like, he's looking at his big expensive studio where people flew from Sweden to, you know, pay a hundred thousand dollars to record with him yeah. and thinking to himself, like maybe those days My are days like, are over or they're waning. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I can't imagine that there are many records in 2004 that were coming out that sounded as good as this, that were made under these circumstances. Uh, I, I, I haven't heard it if there if it's out there. You and know? Th- there might be some that, but probably not quite as audacious. Within yeah. a few years, tons of people would. Yeah. yeah. Um, but like the High Llamas were out then and, and making records that sounded a little like this, but they had real studios and, yeah. re- and real players. Like I'm not, just not diss against the string players on Sick Passion. They're excellent. But they were, you know, multi-tracking. They weren't in an ensemble. They didn't have an infinite number of takes. They had to do it like... Um, you know, in in a poor recording environments. <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah. I I don't think we we didn't ha- have the same kind of uh, luxuries that other bands trying to make this music at that time had. And we were the whole thing was audacious. Like we were doing trying to do that on stage too. Like we would go into Nashville. I would through early email connections. I would email a college in the area see if I could get some string players run them through a quick rehearsal of the tough spots in the songs. Um, and then they would get on page and on stage and play pretty much cold along with the band in, in a bar for the in first Nashville time for, in a bar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was weird. Yeah. Like I had a little mixer that I brought along that all the strings would go into and I had a volume pedal attached to the mixer and Whoa. I would send a mono mix out to the club and I had a monitor that me and the string players could hear. And so some nights I took that volume pedal and it's just like, they're out of the mix. Like they're just sawing <laughs> away there and who knows, but the audience wasn't hearing it. Yeah. You know, it's cacophony on stage, but the audience wasn't hearing it. We were just fighting our way through the songs. Other nights, you know, I could press the pedal down and, be beautiful. and bring them in, yeah. you know, and I knew which part of the songs are weird or where I might have to fade people out and stuff. So I was doing that while I was playing and singing. 
Um, another thing I was wondering about on the record is the drums in terms of just the parts. It seems like, um, yeah, to me, there's, there's some, some ways of playing drums where the drums just become so hooky and like lyrical almost like there's, and maybe it's just because I've listened to this record so many times, but it's like, there's so many fills that just are like lyrics of the song almost how, how, um, were those premeditated in a way of like, oh, this is or, you know, where if there should be a bop bop or... So I think was this was a little bit Brian Wilson-y yeah. in terms of how it was recorded. They weren't always premeditated. Um, Peter, I think, usually have a rough idea for the rhythm section. would, But he has a really weird idea of drums. So he was obsessed by, like, Hal Blaine's work with the Wrecking Crew, but especially Hal Blaine's work for Phil Spector. And so, like, you would see... Uh, Brian Wilson working in the studio, it would often be a lot of like, can you try it again? But more like, ba 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 You know, and that would go on for hours because um, Peter's like hyper-focused and critical. Yeah. I mean, literally, people say that, but he's definitely neurodiverse. Yeah. Um, and so he had something he wanted to hear a lot of the time or for me being part of the sessions, and this is the way I always worked later, you can just hear it when it's, it's like, oh, that. Yeah. That's correct. Yes. And that's when it's time to stop and move on. So there was a lot of that. Um, some of the fills might have appeared because of editing. So I did a heavy amount of drum editing, editing on the record. And so sometimes I might take and borrow little pieces from different takes to make a fill that didn't really exist. So that's sort of yeah. early digital editing yeah. um, of drums. And so some of the fills live um, in a way that pr never was played. Right. Um, like, for instance, uh, and then some of the stuff is looped or fixed. So we used um, we used some uh, loops um, in the first Haley's song, Comet. Introduction. Oh, introduction. Um, and then definitely the ending drum part for Famous Umbrellas is unplayable. Paul plays something that resembles it, but the actual part is a, it's a loop. It, can, oh, wow. it couldn't be played by a human, really. Wow. I mean, I'm sure there's some guy. Somebody, on the yeah, yeah. Um. In the liner notes, it said that uh, this album would not have been possible without direct and specific contributions from, and one of them is Chris Collingwood of uh, Fountains of Wayne. Yeah. What, what, what did he... What? So his his work on the record was yeah. nothing. He yeah. <laughs> he sang, ba nice. in a, I think, in a blackout drunk, he sang backups on the Hercules record. So he, oh. he appears there because of, yeah. Okay. He helped okay, Peter. Cool. Yeah. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, so how would you, looking back on the whole... Peter, you collaboration. What are, what are your takeaways in terms of yeah having collaborated with somebody, surrendering some of that control uh, that you had on the previous records? And it was valuable. Yeah. I learned a lot, and it changed the way I thought about production forever. So, just like the first time I recorded with Jim Weeks, he taught me about EQ, and I had never understood it. I had, I knew what EQ did. But I didn't understand the way of mixing things, especially when there's multiple mics and multiple things, that the interconnectedness of all those things. And that's something I learned from him. Um, and whatever I am as an engineer is because of that experience I had working with Jim. So it was like a small amount of time and a tremendous amount came out of it. Um, with Peter, even though it was a fair amount of time to work on a record, um, I learned things about production that are unique to him that I've kept ever since. Uh, and one of them is this idea that like he was an invasive producer 
And he co-wrote a bunch of the songs. In the end, like I said, half the songs are unrecognizable after he rearranged them. Yeah. Um, the although the basic melodies for all the songs and the lyrics are always, for the most part, mine. A little bit can on a couple of songs, but uh, I learned about taking parts apart. So up to that point, we'd been a band. Everybody in the band had a role. Everybody played a part. When we arrange a song, everybody played through the whole song. We might get really clever and be like, oh, this is the breakdown section. This is just bass and drums or something. But really, everybody had a part. And they, why did they have a part? They had a part because they were there. Right? We're a five-piece band. There will be five parts. Everybody's got to play something. <laughs> there will yep. be a five parts, right? <laughs> um, once we fired the band, <laughs> uh, and then it became this thing where oh, the parts only serve the song and space often serves the song. There's one thing you don't get about Beatles records sometimes or other records is they sound so huge because there's actually so little going yeah, on. Yeah, and they're played softly maybe. Yeah. By yeah. the time you have 24 tracks and you can do a billion overdubs, you, you sort of like, and everything sounds smaller in a weird way. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, so... Get that space and the other weird thing with drums is Peter doesn't believe in anything riding, so there's on the sick passenger there's no hi hats and no rides. Wow, no no ride symbol at all. Yeah, so wow. the, all those riding functions yeah. are are accomplished by percussion instruments, right? A tambourine or or something else. So it's basically just kick and snare and some toms every once in a while in the fills. Where is he? Where is he developing these specific, so such the, specific recording yeah, taste things? I think part of that comes out of the Hal Blaine uh, and the Beach Boys, and and especially his production with the girl groups. Um, yeah. By Phil Spector. So a lot of those things. I'm not sure if there's no hi hat, but maybe because of recordings or because how big the wall of sound is what you don't really hear. Yeah. It's like the snare is really what comes through. Yep. Um, the yep. snare and the kick drum. So, uh, I think that's part of it. And, uh, you know, just a weird story from the record, Paul Pellis, the drummer who played on a number of songs and plays with us all the time. Now, um, he had a bruise like the size of a, of a volleyball on his thigh, because basically the whole drummers are used to riding on something. It's like a timekeeping mechanism for the right. So they snare. Yeah to snare without that t -t -t -t, they don't know where they are half the time so he was rode his entire time on his like thigh and so like there was a giant black bruise on it from a stick <laughs> from riding on something Endless. wow to, yeah to keep himself going my god and this is in record in the recording in the recording because yeah. there's really no there's you can't really hear the thigh yeah you're not supposed to so it's really it was really about him just being able to ride on something so he could play the drums because we didn't want any symbols. Was it hard to get um, drum takes? Like, because that just can often. It's be hard a with hard Peter thing. to get all takes. Yeah. yeah. So um, nothing was recorded as like a band or right. even basics. Would you start on acoustic, or would you start to a click, or would you start? It'd be with the exception of the instrument of the one with no drums. Oh no, even that is. So everything started to a click. Yeah. And in this case, it was sort of pre like it wasn't like a Pro Tools click. It was like I recorded an actual metronome. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you sat there for five minutes once you found the tempo and then <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so everything started with that and a, like a scratch vocal and a scratch, whatever the instrument that was playing, whether it was keyboard or guitar, that was like the, the basis, then the drums, then we retract everything to the yes. drums. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it definitely seems like 
there were things you took away production wise moving forward because even yeah you sent me some of the new the new stuff you've been working on and it and it seems like yeah it sounds like the king radio of are you the sick passenger more than the mr k is dead garage rock thing yeah um i think we got is, better so i took yeah. away those piecing up things yeah in a way um i think everything's more organic on the new record um, so that's a thing I took away. I, we couldn't have made it any other way, but you were on the way to maybe asking if I had any regrets about Are You the Sick Passenger? And the big one is that, like, in a way, the whole thing sounds like it has a stick up of Tess. And it's not just the click that's part of it, but it's really the fact that we were, we were trying to get everything right to the best of our ability in substandard. Like, we didn't have Hal Blaine. Yeah, right. And I couldn't play guitar in half the songs. Like, I had... Dave played guitar mostly. And then when I played guitar, I like I had to punch in or whatever, like eight zillion times. Yeah. Um, my vocals are heavily comped because I was trying to figure out in the studio as we went what the song was supposed to be. And I was also trying to take Peter's direction and he was exacting and not always able to describe what he wanted. So, you know, by the time I get to the 50th or 60th time singing through a song, for example, um, I, you lose track of what you're even trying of to course, do. Of course, yeah. And so I'm super pleased. And like I said, I, I think it's the best thing I ever could have made. But if I'd had an endless amount of money, I would have considered everything that we did on Sick Passenger to be a um, demo. And I would have gone back then and retracked all the songs with re, like with a band. Live almost. Yeah, trying like, to do, like, trying to do a lot of it live. Like yeah. especially the... Like the drums, keys, and bass, bass like or like yeah. whatever the driving instrument was, um, I would have done that live and tried to get something. So the new record is more like that. Okay, cool. Yeah, it seemed hearing some of those new songs, they sound awesome. Oh, it's thanks. Like the, it, when when are you hoping to get that out there? Well, so um, I know because you paid for it, and I still owe you for um, a vinyl version of Sick Pastor. Um, so that's finally going to happen. That died during COVID. Um, we had played a Sick Passenger anniversary show right before COVID happened. Yep. Um, and I sent the record out to be pressed for vinyl um, because my wife had done this incredible thing to get it back from Danny and Paul for me. Yeah. Um, so that I yep. owned it again. Yes, yeah, so you own the masters. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I wanted to press that on vinyl. Um, I got the, the back and I sent it out and then... I heard a pressing and I really hated the, um, well, not a pressing, but I, I, I heard the mastering and I really hated the mastering. And so then I went back to the, um, and I, then we lost our production schedule. Yeah. So by then we were in COVID, everything was backed up. Nobody was, everybody had, was making final. Yeah. The times were year like and year and a half, wait, two, yeah. and two year waits. Yeah. Um, and it just kind of, Fizzled. I was also talking to a label around that time about doing it, and it never really happened. So yeah. um, recently, uh, a small label has reached out, and not that I really need a label, but yeah. I just need somebody involved to be like just like the old pushing days, just ahead. to put it yeah. pushing it ahead. And uh, so they they want to you know license the thing on their imprint, and we'll put cool. it out that way. So I hope to have it done sooner than later. After that, I'll think about getting this new record new out. Record. So I, I'd cool. like it to be in 2024. Awesome. It's mostly in the can. Um, Dave has to write strings for maybe half the record and then it's done. It'll take him, you know, a few hours, maybe. Uh, <laughs> we'll we'll yeah. see. For all of us, everything gets longer and longer as time goes. Yeah. So, so what happened once this record was released, like in the immediate years after Sick Passenger? 
Um, so we were touring. Yeah. That was challenging. Uh, you know, because we'd play these shows and it was never as good as I want it to be. Like even our record release party at the Iron Horse was okay. And that week we rehearsed for. I think we did two nights at um, the Lizard Lounge, back-to-back nights with the same string section. That's as good as it maybe ever got. And then everything after that would have moments that were good, but like moments where it just sounded like we pushed a bunch of instruments down a flight of stairs. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're all playing right at the edge of our ability to play this like pretty erudite music. Not all of us, but certainly people that weren't Dave and Ken. <laughs> for the first part of the touring, Ken had gone off to Seattle and he was, um, you know, he was not really around. So he wasn't available for a lot of the touring work that we did early on. Okay. Um, he had, he went to play with Pedro the Lion. Oh, wow. Um, T.W. Walsh, who I made that Blue Eyes record for, and Dave and Ken and I backed up Tim the most on recently, that album Ken, touring. Ken played with B-52s for years, And Ken's playing with years, B-52s. Right? He yeah. still... He still is, yeah. Um, but yeah, so... But in... He was going to be a member member of Pedro the Lion, and so he moved to Seattle for the band. Wow. Um, and so we did a bunch of those shows, even though he's so instrumental to the record, we did a bunch of those early shows without him, which is a bummer. Um, so... You know, we're trying to figure out how many people we needed to play. We had some people come in. By the end of doing it, we were pretty good at it, but it was still, it never felt like, like I went to see Brian Wilson with the, you know, Darian from the um, Wonder Mints kind of put together this like band that could actually play Brian Wilson songs. And I was like so inspired by that. And I just was like, ugh, I wish we could just play the record and have it sound like the record. Yeah. So um, the closest we came was probably that, 2000, um, you know, when we were playing, we did that anniversary show where we actually rehearsed with everybody yeah, um, and could do a full sound 2019, check. 2019. Right, 2020, I think, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 2019. Yeah. October 2019 at the yeah, Iron Horse. Yeah. And then yeah, we did. And then we did most of the same songs again for New Year's Eve um, without vocal amplification. So minimal amplification. We did that for first night in a Whoa. church in a, the Christian science room. And that just sounded gorgeous. And then COVID and everything just like, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I think, yeah, I always wanted that to be like that. It never quite was. Um, I think Danny and Paul are super supportive, but we had basic misunderstandings about who we were. Yeah. Um, so there's some weird publicity about the band on the internet that really comes out of their publicist. I think they'd use we're using a publicist that was publicist that was really had done a lot of like blues records and other stuff that wasn't really getting what us. you guys were doing. You know, we're, yeah. we're like an indie. I still thought of us like an indie band. Like yeah. I didn't. Maybe back to the old days, I'm crazy, but I was like, well, we belong more in a show with Pavement, you know, or the Flaming Lips, than we do with, yeah, whatever. Uh, and and uh, I think those guys maybe were concerned that we were a little too like ramshackle too, yeah. like because we're going out and playing half-assed shows and, and it, I think they wanted something more. And so we were kind of falling apart as, <laughs> even as we were signed to the label and probably wasn't the best fit, you know, but I, it was just nice that somebody wanted to put it out and was really energetic about it. Yeah. That's but, a good feeling. Right. But yeah. uh, I don't know. It just didn't work out really. Yeah. I don't think it was, yeah, like I said, I don't think it was a good fit. I think, I wanted to see some places like Pitchfork and yeah. Um, and in the end, you like, you mentioned like, I don't know anybody made a record like this in 2004, but it was almost like against us. Like 
it, that was working against you because it was not what was happening almost sort of well i think the- it's more like so if the hercules record came out in nine um around the same time break yeah. so 99 they, they did it with glenn styler but they redone it and by the time they put it out and it's being reviewed in pitchfork oh they're like indie darlings in in the review and it it is partly, I think, because that record sounds so much crappier than our record. Like, we maybe sounded a little too good right. to, to now suddenly we're being compared to, like, you know, people are saying, like, oh, this, you know, a bunch of Brian Wilson wannabes or whatever. Um, you know, there's some bad reviews of my vocals. I don't know. Like, I was, I was a little surprised at how underwhelming the response was. Yeah. Like, if you look on All Music Guide, our first review does, record is reviewed much better. You really? Know? Interesting. Which is, you know, it's weird. Yeah, it is um, weird. So, but then again, you know, some people really, like, got it, like, and became crazy supportive. Yeah. You know, and sent yeah. me really amazingly supportive emails, not even that long ago. So, like, I was looking at, there's as I was trying to research, try to figure out the dates when these things came out, we have, this record has, like, one review on Amazon, and you should go check it out. It's from, like, 2020. And it's just somebody that, like, found the record out of nowhere and was, like, like what the hell? <laughs> They're blown away by it. Well, yeah, yeah, more than blown away. It yeah. seemed like, yeah. Um, wow. And so that it goes back and forth between this sort of like critically underappreciated or um, meh. You know, again, it's never cool to try too hard. And maybe we sounded like we were trying trying too hard. Too hard. Yep, yep. Um, that song "Meet the Maker" is an is an incredible song. Thank you. Yeah. Um, just had to just had to float that out there but um, that's one of my favorite lyrics yeah it also has some production stuff that i think is super cool there's a that whole section is like as with much of the stuff and is doubled instruments instruments working together and that i'd done before peter and peter also did you know so you think about what it sounds like to have a a single note guitar a vibraphone and something else playing the same exact thing and what that mixes together to sound like something that's never existed before. Right, right. So uh, in that section is um, a, our baby grand piano from the living room being played with guitar picks. Oh my God. For example. Um, so yeah, a lot of cool stuff, but I really like the lyric and it was, too, that lyric yeah. was heavily influenced by, so if you listen to Tim Walsh, um, he has a song from his first record called Little Engines and that's a record I worked with him on a little bit, yeah. although not that song. <clears throat> and the lyric is, uh, listen for the sound of little engines in the ground. It's like the idea that the, the world is a machine, mm-hmm. the earth is a machine. Mm-hmm. And that I was taking that. That was one part I took for Meet the Maker. Yeah, um, uh, that first verse of um, if you're looking at wood, oh, yeah. look at the grain. And when the like almost a carpenter, when the craftsman is done, his body is laying in the cabinet that his hands had made. Yes, and I stole. He's I stole almost that. in his own coffin, right? That he built. Like, yeah. yeah. So I took part of that's influenced by a. Um, and he's meeting the maker. Yeah, Sorry yeah. to interrupt, but yeah. he's the maker, and he's dying in his coffin. You know. Yeah, and he's meeting his overall maker. Yes, Not that I'm exactly. very religious, right? <laughs> so I love that lyric, and I love. Um, but it also was inspired by a pretty normal, weird thing. There's a '60s. Um, Twilight Show Zone ripoff show, which name is a, not occurring to me now, but basically the the person gets um, there's a uh, man that makes the caskets, and he makes the caskets and then takes the prisoners out of the prison to be buried. And a person a person strikes a deal with him that they're going to get he's going to make a casket and they're going to get rid of the body that's supposed to be in the casket, 
and he's going to get in there with the body or no, he's going to get in there with the body, get buried. And then later he'll be dug out of the casket. Um, so that's how he's going to get out of the prison. He's going to go with a dead body out, right. be buried and then be unburied. And he's freaking out under the ground out there. And he's like, what, where, when are they uh, coming? When are they coming? <laughs> yeah. And then he like lights a match and he realizes the cabinet, the coffin makers in the, is the person that died. So there's nobody coming. Um, and so, uh, that, I think there's a line in that where the guy says, uh, the man, uh, the man who made the box is in the box. <laughs> and so that influenced that, that, that yeah. set, set you off on a, on a path. Um, the last song, Haley's Comet, is that is that the last on the original sequence no. too? Okay, okay. I, I, there's something about it that to me works on this. You know, uh, what's the last the last lyric? Everything we've had is gone. Yeah. And it really strikes me as, you know, you guys emptied the tank on this record kind of. <laughs> Yeah, in, in a in a good way, you know. Yeah, and it, yeah. it is. It's an, it's another one of the songs like um like the title track that um is about my wife and I splitting up, and uh, just uh you know the idea that uh you know it's this thing that comes around every once you know once in a lifetime basically, um and then it's you know it burns and it's gone. Um, and so that's the kind of reference. That's why it's Haley's Comet. Right. Um, and it's, uh, yeah. So all we had is gone. And saying it, saying it multiple times like that, you know, all these things, you're a songwriter. So, you know, often think about these things always in context. Sometimes you piece them together later. But when I, I had no lyric there. Um, so I just think everything we had, everything we had, everything we had is gone like that. Um, there probably would have been other lyrics in there, but after you do it a few times and you, while you're thinking, well, some later point, I'll write a lyric. And then you realize like, oh boy, that has such finality to it. Yeah. To, to repeat it like a mantra like that is pretty rough. Yeah. You come back two weeks later and sing yeah. it again and they're, oh, that, that's actually working. That's a sign that made me, you know, so playing... My friend Tim Walsh, T.W. Walsh, ran into this problem, too. You know, you, you, you go out to play these songs at clubs or whatever, and people are just like, ah, ah, ah. Talking and, over And then it. you yeah. think, like, <laughs> some of them are pretty hard, you know? And so I still get, like, I'm a little misty just talking about it. And when we sang it at 2019, 20 years after we put it out, or 15 years after we put it out, um, I was all choked up singing it then. So Sick Passengers the same way, you know? Yeah, yeah. Eventually, don't play those songs as much because it's just too painful to play in front of people. Yeah, 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 and it works. It doesn't work in a bar necessarily. You know, it does, maybe as much as in an intimate <laughs> yeah. setting. You know. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Uh, I think that's uh, besides. I was wondering. Yeah, your operatic training. Oh. Were you uh, were you opera trained? Yeah. So I sang in a chorus when I was a kid, okay. like a religious of religious music generally. Um, but it was a private chorus, treble chorus of New England. Yeah. Uh, and so it wasn't part of any church and it wasn't part of any school. It was like a, a regional youth choir. Okay. Um, and it was the person who ran it was really serious. It was a composer and really worked to try to make it bigger than something like a regional music thing like that should be. Yeah. Um, and then I trained with voice lessons through that. Um, and so that was, I was a little kid from seven to maybe 12, um, or 13 and the, 
at the time things got bigger with that. So um, we played around different places. I don't want to say toured, but played outside of the region. And then um, I got to sing with the BSO through that. And then I got the lead in an opera in Boston that was the chorus was going to be supporting. And I ended up not, my voice sort of changed. So I ended up moving to the other study, uh, under, the understudy role, but yeah, so more serious than a kid's thing. Yeah. And sang off often through those course events at places like churches, funerals, weddings and stuff like that. And, and made some money when I was a little kid. So wow. I guess you'd call it semi-professional. Yeah. yeah. Well, your voice still sounds great. I love the the new stuff that you sent me. Oh, and thanks. I'm psyched, psyched to hear the new record. And Scott Ligon plays, plays on some he of does. it, right? Yeah, from yeah. NRBQ. Yeah, yeah. So he, um, uh, you know, interestingly, a guy saw at the base date in '93 or '94. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, he was on tour with. He's just playing alone. Oh, playing alone. Wow, yeah. I didn't. I yeah, didn't realize just playing that. guitar and singing. Wow. Um, and so he's from Brandy. I I know he's an NRBQ, obviously, and I've seen him play with NRBQ. Yeah. But um, for me, uh, you know, when I was soundman for NRBQ, that's with Johnny on yeah. guitar. Yeah, and then. Not Salmon, I'm sorry. Johnny uh, Spompano. Yeah, when I was a, a roadie, is what I meant to say. Yep. And then when uh, um, later, uh, when he was Scott was playing them, he was already in my wife's favorite band, uh, which is um, the Flat Five from Chicago, which is kind of like a super group of people that are backup musicians in other bands. Yeah. Uh, and so that's really where I know him from, where he's also a beautiful keyboard player. Like... I'm sure people will be horrified to hear this, but to the extent that somebody wants to go and keep playing NRBQ songs after we lose Terry someday, he can play He's all those Terry parts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> from from what I heard, that's how uh, Terry ended up hiring him to be in the band because he only he heard him playing the piano. He never he he hadn't even heard him play guitar. That's what I heard. Um, so yeah, he's. I'm sure he's a beautiful. I've heard, yeah, I've seen some videos of him playing. Oh, uh, the, the flat piano. five are amazing. My yeah. wife and I got married. Um, we we went for there were two flat five shows in Chicago at the city winery. And so we went to those two shows. That was what we planned around our whole wedding. Just wow. seeing the flat five are so good. Beautiful. Their um, record songs of love and hope is stunning. Anyway. So it was COVID. I reached out to see if he was free. Um, I thought uh, along the lines of like what might've been, I would have done differently with sick passenger would be some elements that were a little more, um, again, less, less, uh, perfectly controlled uh, in terms of performance, less overdubbed three million times, less punches, less whatever. So Ken adds a lot of that because he's so brilliant with what comes out of his hands. Um, But then uh, I think the couple places where we're putting Scott on the record, um, he's got kind of an inspired sort of approach. And, uh, you know, I would give him weird instructions like, imagine Steely Dan playing this song this way or something and he would bring something back. So he'll be on a few songs, but there's cool. still playing by a lot of playing by Dave Trenholm is a lot of the guitars in the record are Dave Trenholm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm psyched to psyched to hear that. Psyched to uh, get my hands on the vinyl too. Yeah. That's yeah. Awesome. Well, obviously I'm going to send you one. Um, yeah. You get free vinyl for life. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, like I was saying before, I've really come to grips with being a dilettante. I have no interest in, this is a money-making endeavor, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Well, thank you for uh, 
you know sharing sharing so much of uh, the story of the record and sure. yourself. Yeah. Thanks for your interest. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. All right. See you, Frank. All right. I got the triple. I got a, I ain't got no triple. I got AAR. <laughs>